Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, June 28th, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euro, an adventure-seeking fisherman. We're excited to continue our conversation about sockeye salmon with a new guest, Dr. Daniel Schindler, who's a professor at the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. And he's also spent a lot of time studying the habits and the habitats of these fish in the Bristol Bay region of Alaska. So welcome, Daniel. Thanks a lot, Katrina. Happy to be here. So for folks not familiar, could you verbally sketch us what the waterscape is like in this area of Alaska that drains into Bristol Bay and also the scale of the sockeyes that return each year to this region? Yeah, um, Bristol Bay is a place unlike any other place in the world in terms of its uh, suitability for salmon, in particular sockeye salmon. And you know, what makes it such a good place for salmon is, is basically the history and the legacy of the history of glaciers in this area. So 20,000 years ago, this area was mostly covered with ice, like a, almost a mile of ice. Dang. And as those glaciers receded, they ground down the mountains and flattened out the river valleys and left a whole bunch of gravels behind. Hmm. So Bristol Bay is, is nine smallish rivers. And each of those rivers drains one to several big lakes. And sockeye salmon are so prolific out here because the lakes are used as nursery habitat for the juveniles. And all those gravels have produced primo spawning habitat for the adults. Is the use of lakes, is that particular to the sockeye salmon for growing up and as, as juveniles? I mean, all the species of salmon can use lakes, but the sockeye salmon are the most dependent on lakes. The Nushigak River, just to the east of where I'm sitting, has some uh, sockeye salmon that don't have a lake involved. They wash right out of the river and into the ocean. But yeah, most sockeye salmon throughout the world use lakes as a really critical habitat in their life cycle for one year or two years of growing before they head out to the ocean. And when people think of a sockeye salmon, like they might think of the silvery fish when they're at sea, or they might think of, you know, when they return to spawn, they've got that bright red body, that green head. But beyond that, I mean, there's really a lot of diversity within this big population that inhabits this region. Can you talk about some of the examples of what that diversity looks like in terms of like their life history strategies or what habits they're using in addition to what you just mentioned? Yeah, so most people, when they think about salmon, are thinking of those nice silvery-bodied fish that have bright red uh, flesh that show up in the supermarkets. But as you say, they uh, when they mature, they turn bright red. And despite the fact that all sockeye look roughly the same, particularly to the casual observer, one thing we know for sure is that they home to spawn typically within hundreds of meters of where they were born. And what that homing has done is cause what we call local adaptations where populations that inhabit certain parts of the watershed tend to have certain biological attributes that are different than populations or individuals that return to other parts of the watershed. So when we talk about Bristol Bay sockeye, really what we're talking about is a single species that returns to nine major rivers Within each of those rivers is 
dozens, if not hundreds, of genetically distinct individual populations that return to spawn in very specific parts of the watershed that has different habitat conditions. An analogy that uh, has become popular and I like to use to characterize this is much like a, a retirement portfolio where your retirement investments are lumped together into, say, one big account, but then you separate it out into mutual funds, which might be the collection of stocks that return to individual rivers. And each of those mutual funds is composed of individual stocks, or in this case, individual populations. So even though we talk generically about Bristol Bay sockeye, really what we're talking about is hundreds, if not thousands of distinct populations that are adapted and returned to specific places throughout the, uh, throughout the region. Now, are there places in the, along the Pacific coast and the Eastern seaboard where these stocks have not done well and this portfolio effect has been kind of degraded through different stressors like habitat issues and things like that? I guess, can you speak to maybe how Alaska is unique in that way and maybe what's been lost in some of the other regions where salmon are found? Yeah, so the, the things that we see in Alaska and, and Bristol Bay in particular are probably not unique to, to Alaska historically, but Alaska's habitat is still intact. It still has all this variation that is important for evolution of salmon, nor have we messed it up with hatcheries. If you go to the southern range, southern end of the range of salmon, you know, we've hit salmon from every direction possible. We've cut off some of their habitat, we've degraded what habitat remains to them. We've over-harvested many of the populations, which has led to extinction of some of the smaller populations. And then on top of all that, we've really taken this arrogant attitude that we can compensate for lost habitat by just pumping fish out of hatcheries. And it took us decades, we being the scientific community and management community, it took us decades to really appreciate that pumping fish out of hatcheries was not a substitute for letting watersheds and mother nature produce these fish. Because in hatcheries, those fish are affected by a different select group of um, evolutionary processes. And what you end up with are populations of salmon that are adapted to hatcheries not to the wild ecosystems out there. So yeah, if you head south, go to places like many parts of Washington, Oregon, California, we've lost a lot of this genetic diversity within salmon, and that's both for sockeye, but also Chinook salmon, steelhead salmon, or steelhead trout, I guess is the more commonly referred. And we've degraded the habitat to the point where it's much more simple and a lot of this important complexity no longer exists. So I have a question in terms of the fishery that this region supports. How does this portfolio that's so rich in diversity continue to support that fishery? Like what's the what's the connection between the biology and the actual fishery itself? You know, the reason we use the portfolio effect to describe the impact of diversity on fisheries is that all of this diversity in the salmon and in their habitat doesn't necessarily produce more salmon. But what it does do is produce more stable salmon returns from year to year. And the reason for that is that for reasons that we often don't understand, some rivers are just down in terms of the number of salmon that return to them in any given year. But in Bristol Bay, by chance alone, 
other rivers in the region may actually be booming that year. So the declines in one population are often offset by other adjacent rivers doing really well. So all the complexity buffers all the highs and all the lows, and you get more average conditions. The fisheries in Bristol Bay are two to three times more stable from year to year than they would be if we just said, you know, let's get rid of all the habitat, let's pour all our funds into cranking out fish from hatcheries. You might be able to produce a lot of fish, but it's probably going to be boom or bust changes in their abundance. And that's exactly what you see when you go to places like the Sacramento River for Chinook salmon down there. Some years, the Sacramento produces a remarkable number of Chinook salmon, but um, the peaks in abundance are often offset by years, many years in a row where there's too few fish to support any fishing at all. And in Bristol Bay, look over the last century, there's been very few years, I mean, maybe two or three years where uh, returns are so low that they can't support fisheries. And uh, the reason for that is because of all this diversity in the system or the peaks in some populations are offsetting the crashes in other populations in the, in the region. So I got a question about the research that you've been involved with and a lot of others. What are you seeing and how do you kind of piece all this together to understand such a complex system? Yeah, so we're in the luxurious position of having, you know, high quality observations for over 60 years. In fact, some of our data sets go back 70 years. You know, some of the folks who who collected those data in the 1950s and 1960s would probably not believe us if we told them how many fish return to some of the streams now. Some of the streams are 10 times higher in terms of how many fish are in them. And other streams are 10 times lower than the densities they saw in the, at the end of the 20th century or even the mid-20th century. Part of our appreciation for these effects really comes from the fact that we have long-term systematic observations of how many salmon come back to the rivers that fishing, Alaska Fish and Game collects now. And then within a couple of the watersheds, you know, we put our, our troops out in the field and we hike, you know, hundreds of kilometers of streams every year and count how many fish are there. And uh, it's that long-term grueling process of collecting data, nothing fancy, but just counting how many fish are in the streams. It's really the long-term perspectives that have given us, you know, these views about how these ecosystems actually operate. Just for a, a sense of scale, how many fish are being harvested out of this region annually and how many, yeah, how many are returning to overall spawning grounds within the watershed? Yeah, so the proportion or the, the percentage of fish that come back to, to the systems each year that are caught is variable. And the reason it's variable is because the way the system's managed is through what we call an escapement goal, where each river has a target number of spawners that fishing game wants to allow to pass through the fishery and populate the spawning grounds. And because the spawning grounds are not infinite, there's a finite amount of habitat, there's a pretty good number that says, all right, the Wood River system that I'm sitting in right now has room for about a million to a million and a half spawning salmon every year. Anything in excess of that number is what the fishery is allowed to take. So if the return to the system is 3 million fish in a year, the fishery typically gets about 50% of them. 
But if the return to the river is 10 million fish this year, then the fishery would take somewhere on the order of 80 to 85% of them. It seems like a really high number, but it is remarkably sustainable. And in fact, the numbers of sockeye salmon returning to Bristol Bay continues to increase. The last decade has averaged over 50 million fish a year that have returned to the nine major rivers of Bristol Bay. And that's without hatcheries, that's without habitat enhancements, that's with pretty low-key management in general. It's based on science, it's based on pretty simple principles, and the watersheds are remarkably productive. You know, the last six years we've seen, every year has been over 50 million fish, and we expect about 50 million fish this year. And is it still about half of the world's supply of sockeye salmon that comes out of this, this region? Yeah, it, de- it depends, of course, what time frame you average over. But the last five or six years, I bet it's more like 60 or 70 percent of the world's wow. sockeye has been produced in Bristol Bay, largely because Bristol Bay has boomed at a time when many other sockeye populations throughout the world have not done too well. Anything south of the Alaska Peninsula the last five years has, has barely <laughs> made their escapement goals. It has been very limited fisheries. You know, the booms in Bristol Bay sockeye salmon that we've seen the last five, six years have offset some of the declines that have occurred elsewhere in their range. We, we talk about a lot of different species of fish on this show, and oftentimes they're ones that fish and wildlife, there might be some sort of conservation concern, and we talk about uh, all the issues and what people can do to protect them. It's really nice to be able to f- highlight a well-managed fishery that's doing really well. So I just wanted to point that out because I think it's really neat. Yeah, I mean, there, there's lots of success stories that we could point to, but at the top of the list should be Bristol Bay. The habitat's intact. It's incredibly valuable. The, you know, the most recent estimates are the total value of the fishery is about a $1.5 billion a year in the commercial fishery alone. And that's a big number. That number gets really big when you think about the fact that it has done that for 120 years straight. You often hear that, well, we can't afford to support to protect these watersheds because we need economic activity. But these places are producing a billion and a half dollars of revenue every year. It's happened for over 120 years, and it's costing us, us being society at large or the management agencies, almost nothing. And in fact, if you look to the future, there's no reason why this these ecosystems can't continue to produce billion and a half valued fisheries for the next hundred years. I want to hear what it is about this place that keeps you coming back year after year. What keeps me coming back, of course, is the personal gratification of being out in a beautiful place and working with interesting animals and working with interesting students and, and fellow colleagues. But what keeps us all motivated is the fact that, uh, we learn something new every year. I think a lot of years, you know, we leave scratching our heads, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what the heck did we just see this year that we had no idea was coming. You know, we do know a lot about these ecosystems, but the more we study them, the more we are humbled by how little we know about them. Yeah. And uh, that makes for good science because it keeps us curious and trying to figure things out. It also tells us something about how we should manage these systems. So we need to think about ways that we can manage with uncertainties about what is actually going to happen in the future. So yeah, what's kept me in the game here for so long is really my curiosity, my love for the outdoors, 
and uh, a really cool place. Do you have any messages you'd like to tell folks listening about this fishery or these fish out here? Well, a couple of things. One, if you haven't been to Alaska, come check it out because it's, you know, it's better and more interesting than any picture book or TV show would ever show you. Second thing is that, um, you know, people should realize that not all fishing stories or fishery stories are these disasters, that there are places like Bristol Bay and there are others in the world where, you know, there are big economies that are derived entirely from harvesting wild animals. And it's totally sustainable and it's remarkably efficient when we start thinking about things like greenhouse gas emissions that are produced through the production of food, through effects on water quality, you know, the human footprint associated with harvesting salmon in Bristol Bay is remarkably small. And as we move into a future with more people on the planet and more people wanting to eat protein uh, and have uh, improved livelihoods, et cetera, places like Bristol Bay are going to continue to contribute to those aspirations. And last, I guess, is that, you know, protecting these places is, it should be a high priority for everyone, not just the people who live out here, not just the people who are involved in the fishery, but there's no replacement for Bristol Bay type locations and Bristol Bay type ecosystems. And just knowing places like this exist is worth something in itself. For someone who might not be up in Alaska, what can they do to help support a fishery like this? What's the most important thing that they can do? Eat fish, eat wild fish. You meet people, I meet people all the time who say, well, I'm not gonna eat that fish. The thing's endangered and by eating it, I'm just gonna kill one more fish. It's actually the exact opposite that uh, in, the, in North America, fish that are available on the market are probably mostly certified to be sustainable. The way we can make those fishes valuable and sustainable in the long term is to eat them, which means buying that product. Another thing that people who aren't in Alaska can do is think about water. We turn on the tap, we get our fresh drinkable water, and we often don't think about where it comes from. And uh, protecting watersheds, um, whether it's in Arkansas or Texas or Washington or Alaska, protecting watersheds protects a lot of our way of lives. And in Alaska, the way of lives are intimately connected to water because of the importance of fisheries for things like salmon, but also for clean drinking water supplies, et cetera. So we need to figure out ways to continue to protect fresh waters in the broadest sense we can. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Schindler. It's been great talking to you, and we hope everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish and also eats the wild, sustainably caught fish that are out there. Eat wild, eat local. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. The show is produced by David Hoffman, co-produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>